Thank you so much um, for coming this morning. Um, this is, I'm really, really privileged and honored to have Rebecca Carl here today. Um, she, a little bit about Rebecca. Rebecca was my professor of history at NYU, and I, I consider myself really um, very privileged to have studied with her at NYU. I must say that um, Rebecca has really been instrumental in shaping everything about my intellectual life. Um, and also my sense of, of not just history, I studied history and Chinese history in particular with her, but she really shaped my understanding not only of Chinese history, but also of literature. And so when, I, when we settled on this theme about history, Rebecca was the first person in my mind to invite um, to actually talk about the relationship between history and literature. And, and so I've invited her to actually do the first lecture, GTLF lecture on literature and history. Um, Rebecca is a historian of modern China, and um, we studied with, I studied with Rebecca the, the history from the Opium War to the Communist Revolution, and it really, um, really opened my mind to, to everything. Um, she, her work focuses on intellectual history, um, and also, um, she is the author of quite a few books, including one on Mao Zedong and China in the 20th century, and an upcoming book to be published by Verso on China's revolutions in the modern world. Um, she also has a book called Staging the World, which was published um, I can't remember a long, year, time long time ago. Um, but that's, uh, that's an incredible book also to, to look out for if you can get hold of it. Um, her academic work focuses on intellectual history, feminism, um, and political economy in 20th century. Um, but I would really like to emphasize that Rebecca, um, Rebecca is very deeply um, immersed also in, in literary history. Um, I learned Lucian and everything I know about Mao and Marx and Lenin from her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so please, Join me in welcoming um, Rebecca Carl to deliver the first GTLF lecture on history and literature. Rebecca. Well, that was um, an amazing introduction. Thank you. Um, and I now have to take my glasses off so I can't see any of you so I can read my paper. Uh, but I do want to thank the organizers, particularly Pauline. Uh, whom I had the extraordinarily good fortune of having in my class uh, more than two decades ago. Um, am, I, am I revealing too much by saying that? Um, and uh, I am really quite in awe of the company I'm keeping here, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. I also want to dedicate this talk uh, to my friend and former classmate and literary scholar, the late Sarah Danius, who uh, was the first woman permanent secretary of the Swedish Academy, charged with awarding the Nobel Literature Prize. Uh, Sarah uh, died just very recently, uh, and that was uh, sort of shocking to many of us who were her um, classmates. She was a uh, fearless feminist, an intellectual, and a champion of literature. Uh, and she knew we lived in fraught times and that a literature adequate to our times came from all over the world and in many guises. She knew that a literature adequate to our times needed to challenge us to be our better selves, individually and collectively. 
She was a utopian at heart, engaged in a very practical activity, choosing from an enormous range of extraordinary possibilities the one literary figure per year who expressively and aesthetically presented what was urgent and vital in this time, in this place we call our world. It was an impossible task, of course, and she discharged her responsibilities with courage, humor, and with honesty. Her voice, her perspective, and for me, her very good friendship will be missed. So I just wanted to mark her passing. And now I'll switch to my paper. Uh, I, I called this paper, What is to be Done? Literature and History in China's Revolutionary 20th Century. In these days, when many elements of the 20th century world we thought were durable and are crumbling around us, with the devolution of former centers of violently perdurable global power and the emergence of new centers of domination, with the final collapse of the myth of endless resources that challenge us to face the end of our known natural environments, with the daily drumbeat of global and local events shot through with racist cruelty and gendered brutality, when no part of the world can any longer be considered a settled space of anti-capitalist resistance, when China, despite or even because of its Communist Party, has become a hegemon intent upon bending world order to its nationalist will, and yet when sources of hope and renewal continually spring up from long-standing movements and shorter-lived but no less passionate mobilizations, when these uprisings demonstrate new ways of being together, of forming social relations based on the multiplicity of our beings, the diversity of our lives and labors, the differences in unity and the unity in differences that make any radical politics viable and potentially liberatory. In these very fraught and yet somewhat hopeful times, we can and indeed should properly ask, what is to be done? To many scholars or practitioners of literature, history, or politics, the question, what is to be done, may recall the Russian writer Nikolai Chernyshevsky's eponymous 1863 novel of radical intellectual utopianism. Or maybe it reminds us of Vladimir Lenin's 1902 political tract and his early 20th century revolutionary vanguardism. As, re as we can recall for Chernyshevsky, the question, what is to be done in mid-19th century Russia, was both urgent and disposable. That is, if life is, if, if beauty is life, the question of what is to be done today, in that day, had to be located in the realm of life and not in the realm of aesthetic idealism. For Chernyshevsky, the question what is to be done, its urgency, its immediacy, its connecting of a present life with a possible futurity, and also its ephemerality, was a question that had to be posed and answered from within the sociality and social relations of life as lived in a particular time and a particular place. It is thus a question that needs to be repetitively posed and answered anew. As Lenin remarked of Chernyshevsky, what is the secret of the extraordinary success of the novel, What is to be Done? Quote, it is the fact that this novel gave a living and universally understood answer to questions in which a considerable section of the reading public was keenly interested, unquote. Lenin continued that in the wake of the novel, quote, a new element came to play a big role in family relations, in love and friendship, that is, convictions, which formerly only the very smallest handful of idealists had possessed, unquote. 
With the emergence of convictions in the intimate sphere of family, not religious belief, but a temp temporally specific and this worldly concern with the conditions of life, Lenin concluded, quote, Chernyshevsky was present at the birth of a new type of new people, unquote. While Chernyshevsky's imagined new type no doubt was limited by class, ethnicity, race, and gender. And while Chernyshevsky himself was part of the 19th century Russian intelligentsia, he nevertheless was not infected with what Lenin called the aristocraticalness of knowledge. Rather, Chernyshevsky's novelistic practice begins from and returns to the messiness of reality as the primary focus of creation, literature, and life. In Kautsky's words, to which Lenin often returned, Chernyshevsky lived in an epoch when every socialist was a poet and every poet was a socialist. Henceforth, life and socialism, routine and transformation were to become the indivisible, were to become indivisible from the everyday poetics of history and literature. Several decades after Chernyshevsky, for Lenin, the, question, uh, the answer to the political question of what is to be done was to be sought and clarified through the process of revolution. Because for Lenin, the social relations of life, as lived in early 20th century Russia, were only comprehensible as a totality once they were understood to be structured by and through revolutionary time and the time of revolution. Indeed, shortly before the October Revolution, Lenin had challenged his comrades, quote, I don't know how radical you are or how radical I am. I am certainly not radical enough. That is, one must always try to be as radical as reality itself, unquote. Lenin's challenge to be adequate to the complexity of reality was in fact a challenge to defamiliarize reality so as to find possibilities for recreating and transforming it. In the 1920s, Lukács identified Lenin's particular genius at defamiliarizing reality in his explicit focus on revolution as an everyday issue. With his focus on the everyday, Lenin's purpose was to recall radical philosophy to its vocation of finding a possibility for a revolutionary politics in the mundane repetition of quotidian life. This possibility entailed, as Lukács put it, finding, quote, a reality more real and therefore more important than isolated facts and tendencies, unquote. By Lenin's time then, the question what is to be done as a radical question of social transformation could only be asked on the grounds of a settled theoretical orientation that took everyday practice and its transformation as a central problematic and central political and cultural challenge of revolution. Revolution is a time of history and it is thus a narrative time. For many Chinese cultural radicals, or would-be radicals in the 1920s and beyond, one of the most important historical and hence narrative issues was how to unify revolutionary theory and revolutionary practice, specifically the theory and practice of socialist revolution in China in the post-Great War world, uh, in the post-Great War, early 20th century world. And I use the Great War because, of course, we know World War I is only so named after World War II happened. Uh, so that world, uh, the, the World War I was known as the Great War. And it was supposed to be the war to end all wars. Of course, it did not. 
to guide this practice of, uh, of uh, theory and, and uh, revolutionary theory and revolutionary practice, as Mao Zedong later never tired of citing from Lenin, without revolutionary theory, there is no revolutionary movement. Thus, for Chinese radicals and revolutions and revolutionaries, the question, what is to be done, could only be posed by investigating the specific question, what is the actuality of revolution in China and in the world in the complex now of a particular Chinese and yet ineluctably global historical moment? Thus, how were Chinese radicals and revolutionaries to determine what structured their historical time and place? What were the narratives of history and literature and the forms of sociality adequate to the actuality of revolution in that time and that place? Further, how were history and narrative to be configured in the effort to figure a different past, an alternative present, a radically transformed future? Investigation, or diaocha, was the radical mode through which the incipient movement turned to subalterns to generate processes of knowledge production. Indeed, as Mao was also later to say, without investigation, there is no right to speak. What is to be done? Or rather, what will have been done in the name of revolutionary historical time? By changing the tense from a simple present to a future anterior, I have altered the valence of the question. I want to suggest, following Tani Barlow's pioneering analysis in a different context, that this change in valence, although it's not a change in actual grammar since Chinese doesn't have the grammatical construction to change that, that uh, kind of, uh, in that kind of way, but this change in valence nevertheless characterized 20th century Chinese literary and historical narrative form. From one angle, as Mao was to summarize the problem in 1942, quote, we are Marxists, and Marxism teaches that in our approach to a problem, we should start from objective facts, not from abstract definitions, unquote. And then from a an adjacent angle, with what facts, whose past and whose present, and in the name of whose future will one have told the story? How we approach answers to that question clearly matters a great deal. At the outset of the New Culture May 4th period in China, that's the 19, 1915 to the 1920s, where May 4th refers to an inaugural mass movement whose origin resides in protests launched on uh, May 4th, 1919, against the unjust provisions pertaining to China of the Versailles Treaty ending the Great War. At the outset of this moment of almost pure culture critique, the question of with which facts to begin to narrate China and the modern world was explicitly posed as a problem in and of literary and historical practice. Thus, if a major feature of the narrative mode, as literary critic Hayden White has written, is an ideal structuring of continuities in time and space, how then to figure in literature and history new ideas of time and space, new, continu new continuities, but then again also new ruptures that could and would yield different pasts, presents, and futures? Which forms of expression, language, and structure could or should be deployed? At this point in the 1920s and 30s, narrative was explicitly posed as a problem within what recently has been hailed as literary activism. Part of the problem of activism in the May 4th period and beyond 
was the question of who or what constitutes an appropriate subject of literary expression, which itself is a question that bleeds effortlessly into an adjacent question, who or what is an appropriate subject of history. In early 20th century China, with a reality rendered more radical by the moment and a radicalism becoming ever more real, literary activists such as Lu Xun, Ding Ling, Lao She, Mao Dun, Shen Chongwen, Liu Huiyin, and even Zhang Ailin, among many others, chose their facts, wrote their histories and dramas and novels and histories to reveal and create a reality more real to develop literary practices adequate to that reality. In these efforts, by departing from the determinism of closed histories, by positing the analytical value of presentation over representation, by positioning literature or history or film or photography for that matter as the possibility for a realist intervention into social reality, the innovative practices inaugurated in the 19-teens and persisting through the 20th century soon were broadly aligned with the problem of the everyday as a site of alienated struggle, as a site of cultural and ideological struggle over the recreation of social values. How could literature, an aesthetic form, and artistic practice be made adequate to the reality, the complexity, and routines of the everyday? I'm not posing this as an abstract question of realism in the sense of a literary canonical categorization. Rather, in a materialist vein, I suggest it is and was a utopian question of political praxis, a question repeatedly posed and answered anew as one of the most fraught problems of narrative and writing in 20th century China. What is to be done? What will have been done? As a narrative problem of and in literature and history and or as a political problem of and in revolutionary practice. In both versions, the question sounds a clarion call to action, to challenge ourselves to transform our worlds. It is a call to act while keeping in mind the sentiment Ernst Bloch expressed in the mid-19th century, in the mid-20th century, that, quote, the most tragic form of loss is the loss of capacity to imagine that things could be different. Indeed, what is to be done, and about what exactly, and by whom? In 1926, Mao Zedong began a short consideration of China's social structure with a query, who are our enemies? Who are our friends? This is a question of primary importance for the revolution." Unquote. An early attempt to understand China's society and to rewrite its history in a Marxist analytical mode articulated in the absolute antagonistic terms of friends and enemies, class analysis allowed Mao to present China's past and contemporary situations as necessary revolutionary stages of struggle in the securing of China's future. This type of rethinking of past, current, and future time is characteristic of all modern historical analysis, even if it is pursued very differently for different political purposes. Indeed, one prominent feature of the modern in China, as elsewhere, is that it does not refer merely to a chronology or description. Rather, it refers to an experience of time, a temporality, and a form of historical becoming, a historicity, when the conditions of the past are no longer perceived as an absolute restraint on the time of the present, but rather 
they become an analytical opening to the envisioning of a new future. For, for example, when the writer Dingling attacked in the late 1920s and early 1930s, the hold of the Confucian three bonds, father and son, leader and led, husband and wife, on the everyday social practice of her time, she went on to attack not only this essentializing hierarchy of social order in the many varieties of its lived forms, but specifically she attacked those forms in the gendered nature of that hierarchy. A new type of analysis, her gendering of social life opened a whole new experiential realm through which the pattern past could and would inform present feminist struggles and future socialist goals. In these widespread analytic attacks, often encapsulated as the May 4th legacy, the gendered family mode of social life and social order became one of the major literary and historical targets of narrative, critical, and sociological investigation and of sociopolitical transformation, whether revolutionary or reformist. From Mao Zedong's 1919 commentary on the suicide of a certain Miss Zhao, in which he called the traditional marriage form uh, that tr the traditional marriage a form of daily rape for women, to Dingling's own exploration of gender, unmarried sex, and sociality in such novellas as Shanghai, Spring 1930, to Ba Jin's famous novel, Family, which quintessentially takes up a multi-generational clan caught in the grip of historical change, to Xiao Hong's despairing depiction in her novella, Field of Life and Death, of the gendered reproductive slavery characteristic of life in China's rural villages, to Mao Dun's Rainbow, which can perhaps be seen as a sequel to Ibsen's Doll's House, in which the question of what a Chinese Nora might do after she leaves home is taken up. These and many more literary experiments of the time reread the past and the present in gendered terms, in a hyper-realist mode intended as a form of social intervention into a complex reality to shape a desired future, whose contours the storyteller could articulate into new social truths. The storytelling thus was pursued in sometimes chaotic fashion. Protagonist and writer often were confused. Sympathies were metonymically conflated. A new moral language and ethics were offered as models for broad emulation. Indeed, when Mao Zedong wrote his report on the Hunan Peasant Movement in 1927, and he begins this official document with a litany of I saw, I witnessed, I, 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 the authority of the writer and analyst is completely constructed through the first-person narrative mode. And it is in this narrative mode that new subjects of history, new historical subjects, not only as protagonists, but as storytellers of China's past and future, came into being, peasants, workers, women, the marginalized, the damaged, the overlooked, the powerless, and the indigent. Of course, it would be a mistake to see these developments as purely internal and spontaneous, or as purely reactive to external influence. After all, as my late PhD advisor, Arif Derlich, never tired of reminding me, influence is an astrological, not a historical process. I've always remembered that. Said, don't talk about influence. I, I have hesitated ever since. Um, this is true 
so that it's neither internal nor purely external. This is true because from the mid-19th century onward, a transformed modern temporality and historicity corresponded directly or indirectly to the violently imposed connectedness of an emerging world order under, under an evolving global capitalist regime. In this emergent order, China as a polity and a people was subjugated in and through the inherent structural violence of capitalist imperialism and colonialism. And yet, it was only beginning in the late 19-teens, 20s, and 30s that a serious literary and historical engagement with what, that, what this global subordination meant was undertaken in China. So on the one hand, we, we must acknowledge that any attempt to think objectively about the modern past in the present forces a simultaneous global and local historical perspective. And on the other hand, it is also in this sense that we must see that the subjective problem of narration, which facts are used to tell which story, how is the story organized, in whose voice is it told, emerge as a problem of what is to be done about modern China, only in the context of the global crisis precipitated by the end of the Great War the broad betrayals of non-Western peoples at Versailles and the Russian Revolution. That is, the problem of narration emerged most coherently in the context of an overdetermination of events around the late 19-teens and into the 1920s. In this dual sense, China's modern history and literature were compelled into simultaneous ideological and material encounters with traces of China's own past as well as with Euro-American, Japanese, and Russian models of history and narrative. All of this helped open up new imaginings for China's present and future. Moves towards cultural revolution emerged at the same time as strivings towards political revolution. By cultural revolution, I mean an extended moment during which there was great aesthetic reflexivity yielding a serious interrogation into how artistic modes might relate to the history in which they were imbricated. Cultural revolution thus can be understood as intervention, as a form of intervention that helped organize the social world of thought and cultural production in a new way, without, however, being a clean break from the past. By political revolution, I mean the envisioning of possible futures in which political arrangements corresponded to dramatically transformed and more equitable social and economic relations, possibilities that yielded the beginning of a social working towards the realization of the future. And yet these were not merely simultaneous historical emergences. They were deeply and dialectically entwined. On the one hand then, many elements of these conflicts have been bound up with the politics of China as a state form, implicated that is in the social struggles over whether the state should be founded upon an urban-based bourgeois hegemony, a thinly disguised or, an, or entirely undisguised Confucian patriarchy, a semi-feudal agrarian state capitalist bureaucracy, a socio-political dictatorship of the proletarian peasant alliance, a party state oligarchy directed by and through a technocratic regime, or something else entirely. These were and remain arenas of fierce consultation contestation at the intellectual, political, and cultural and social levels. On the other hand then, these conflicts have, al have also been thoroughly tied to the 20th century struggles over and in cultural forms and historiographical writing and narration. 
the Yan'an era struggles over the meaning and significance of life, or shenghuo, are exemplary in this regard. It was in Yan'an, the Mao-led communist space area from 1935 to 1947, that a number of revolutionary experiments were tried, debated, defended, repressed, or discarded. Chernyshevsky and Lenin were not incidental to these cultural and political projects. But the experiments in which I am interested here were the attempts to redefine life, or shenghuo, not as an objective set of routines and sociologically or ethnographically knowable data sets, but as Chernyshevsky had advocated a century before, life had to be seen as an aesthetic and practical horizon into which culture could intervene through dialectical practice. The differing social formations of the peasantry and the proletariat indicated that life, or shenghuo, was uneven and multiple, and that it unfolded in and through a historically specific set of social relations, shaped internally and externally by a number of different social processes. As material practice then, life had to be the mass principle of cultural creation. Thus, what is to be done, what will have been done, these became questions of transforming life at every level possible. Again, we return to Dingling, who having inscribed the woman problem as a problem of gendered social relations into the life of her protagonists since the 1920s, comes back at the issue in 1942 in the context of the March 8th Women's Day celebrations in Yan'an, for which she wrote a small essay. Committed to presenting life as a gendered socio-political experience fraught with many contradictions, Dingling publicly articulated growing tensions between, on the one hand, a Communist Party pressed on all sides by the Japanese and the nationalists, and the consequent party demand for continuous productive labor, and, on the other hand, an increasing propensity by the party to be unconcerned with proliferating gendered social injustice in the family and public life alike. If, as Dingling remarked, the party insisted, quote, on raising high the word woman, funi, unquote, it would need to stop subordinating actual women to family reproduction, labor production, revolution, or class struggle. For Dingling, woman could not be conceptualized merely as a biological or sexual figure of difference from man. Rather, woman would have to demarcate a fundamentally altered gendered form of life, shenghuo, as a social relation, and, importantly, and importantly, one in which family relations were not revitalized in the image of patriarchal hierarchy, but instead were thoroughly reimagined. Earlier in the decade, Dingling had already written several stories centered on the problem of rape, in which the rural female victims refused to be enduringly socially defined by the violent and defiling act. As her female protagonists tell their stories of rape, loudly, publicly, in defiance of the social shame that is supposed to subtend the experience, Dingling gives them, not the patriline or the party state, the capacity to make social and political sense of their lives. In the insistently voiced eye of witness and experience, Dingling moves her women out of expected positions of passivity 
into positions of potential social power. Thus, by the time she published her thoughts on, May, on March 8th, Dingling again had marked out a gendered space of analysis by retrieving and presenting life in insurgent form, in a form that exceeded party lines. And yet, in 1942, for her dive into life and its many gendered contradictions, she was criticized, her piece was debated, and her insufficiencies as a communist revolution were, a revolutionary were aired. The future that Dingling was incipiently map, mapping out did not faithfully replicate the party's representational practices. Rather, it made present an insurgent analytic of daily life too out of step with the totalizing revolutionary time now required by party discipline. Dingling was sanctioned. She was sent to live with peasants, labor with them, and instructed to be re-educated by them. Her 1943 novel, uh, 48 novel, sorry, her 1948 novel, The Sun Shines Over the River, winner of the 1951 Stalin Prize in Literature, is the result of this re-education experience. A brilliant piece of writing, the novel, however, resubordinates gender to the dyadic reproductive relations deeply embedded in village families. The moment of analytic and presentational insurgency had passed. Stepping over the 1949 divide, we find the enthusiasm for literary and historical experimentation redoubled as newly christened culture workers took up Mao's 1942 talks at the Yan'an Forum on Art and Literature as a challenge to produce a literature and culture adequate to socialism and a socialist culture and literature adequate to China's revolutionary energy and historical social unevenness. The problem of narration, how to narrate China's socialist transition within the context of its non-Western semi-colonial condition, how to narrate a prospective literature that nevertheless would be legible now in a, in a semi-literate agrarian society, multiplied vastly. The May 4th project in its twinned anti-imperialist and anti-feudal guises became attenuated as its abstractions were rendered into a political reality more real and a radicalism more revolutionary than originally envisioned. May 4th was overtaken by the concrete project of building socialism in China. What will have been done had arrived as the day after the revolution. Socialism, we must recall, was a profoundly cultural event, as it had to be imagined and presented simultaneously. It had to be imagined and represented as a form of everyday life that pertained to and, re and was relevant for a large swath of the Chinese population. In this sense, the socialist revolution and building socialism were narrative events. In their intention to transform social consciousness, their premises were always already cultural. And yet, in practice, there was no hiding from the fact that within the process of socialist construction as a cultural endeavor, there were endless contradictions. Historians and cultural workers of the time, Zhao Shuli, Chu Bo, and many others, tried very hard to reconcile the political with the literary or narrative, the prospective with the real. As contemporary liter literary critic Tsai Xiang has written, the task of creating a socialist culture and a culture of socialism 
was precisely the task of producing a literary and historical imagination that was part of the formation of revolutionary social subjectivity. The resolutions to the, the, resolutions to the challenges presented by this task were neither clear nor straightforward. And yet, as the revolutionary transformation of Chinese social life proceeded, the old question of what is to be done was being answered by an increasingly narrowly construed injunction about what will have been done in the name of party policy. Thus it was that after the revolution, Guoming Ho became a prospective time of the future now in construction. Literature as a site of consciousness needed to be focused on the construction, constructing in the present and for the future a new society and a new type of socialist personhood, a xinran. Meanwhile, the mass project of gaizao, or remolding and re-education, became in large part a process of narration in an autobiographical and self-critical mode, such as in the villages, the project of suku, or speaking bitterness, which allowed rural men and women to make sense of their previous subjugated lives under class and patriarchal domination. Narrating and re-narrating was sometimes pleasurable. It could give rise to new feelings and new desires, and it could allow individuals to dare to imagine ideal collective futures that would be free from the constraints of previously repressive social relations. And yet all this narrating soon also became compulsory and incantatory with scripts pre-written and words preordained, no longer a process of self and social discovery, but rather one of repetitive recuperation and repeated accusation. Han Xiaogong, in his postscript to the revolution, Geming Hoji, notes how optimistically he and others joined the project to be re-educated, to re-narrate themselves into the socialist project, and yet how now, today, in the afterlife of the narrative, he and others li live among the ruins of revolution, in Ashish Nandi's spare phrase. What happened between the optimistic time of after the revolution and the revolution's postscript, its ruins, when loss, mourning, disillusionment, and depoliticization set in? Was it exhaustion? Was it ambivalence? Was it so insufficient remolding? Or is it the possibility that the modal revolutionary question of the 19th and 20th centuries, what is to be done, what will have been done, could no longer echo with plausible answers? In recent years, the historian Wang Hui has noted that the May 4th movement of 1919 has come to be characterized as an anti-feudal revolution. This characterization downgrades its anti-imperialist agenda and foregrounds its Enlightenment credentials. Wang Hui points out that the subtext of anti-feudalism was anti-political, quote, because the political revolution referred to the total revolution that is now repudiated, unquote. Wang Hui wrote that, that particular phrase in the mid-1990s. In recent decades, the narrowing of the significance of May 4th has only gained in persuasion, not only in China, but in US-based scholarship as well. The ever more pedantic focus on realism as a literary category, the categorization of the May 4th as an enlightenment movement of elites rather than the inauguration of a mass movement of, demo of cross-class democracy, 
the consequent repudiation of the import of socialist revolution in China's 20th century, and the contemporary dreary state nationalist focus on accountancy, on wealth amassing through strategies of dispossession and global capital, capital accumulation. In all of these ways, the Chinese revolutionary 20th century has been refigured as a time of mourning and of grief. Yet, well, yet, while we certainly should not ignore or excuse the violence and the horrors of China's 20th century passages, we must remember that China was, after all, embedded in an exorbitantly violent 20th century world. Nevertheless, the question remains, how do we cope with socialist memory? Can we even ask, what was to have been done after all? I'll just conclude by saying that retrieving the narratives of socialism is not intended to advocate a restoration of the past, nor is it to advocate a nostalgic uh, uh, memory for it. Far from. Rather, it is to recognize that socialist narrative was creative, and it tried to recreate people's desires and aspirations to transform existing social relations. Re we need to recall this in large part because capitalism too has its narratives. In becoming naturalized the world over, capitalist narratives, neoliberal or other, risk effacing the alternative insurgent possibilities hiding in plain sight within our current moment. And it is only by keeping insurgent universality and the universalism of insurgency at front and center of our narratives today that hope for our present and our future might still be secured. Thank you. take some thank you so much for that mm -hmm. incredible um, lecture professor Carl we will take some questions I'm sure you're all brimming with questions for Rebecca sorry if that stunned you into violence Sherrod has a question <laughs> I'd just start the ball rolling. Um, there's, a, there's an Amer interesting um, American ethnographer who works on uh, Central Asia, uh, sorry, uh, Central Europe, uh, Kirsten Godse, and she's got a book called The Red Hangover, which is about precisely the kind of uh, assertion you make that, you know, we fail to uh, imagine a different world. And she says that the socialist moment for Central Europe is that practical realization of a, a different world, however imperfect. I wonder if today in contemporary writings, uh, historians or people in literature, there is this attempt to go back to that, whether nostalgically, to, uh, to think about China differently because of where China is today, so enmeshed in a kind of capitalist, uh, imperialist uh, project. Um, these, uh, in a previous book of mine, I called uh, I called our, our red hangover. I like that phrase. Uh, it's uh, I, I'm I'm I suffer often from hangovers. <laughs> Hopefully, I, I uh, it's uh, maybe it's a red hangover too. Um, but the uh, I've I called it an entry into dystopia, uh, the the failure of utopian thinking, and I think utopian thinking is an incredibly important part of the 20th century world that we somehow have uh, lost touch with these days or often enough. 
Um, the uh, field of Chinese literature in the United States, at least, uh, that I'm most familiar with, uh, has um, recently rediscovered the 1950s, uh, uh, the first decade of China's uh, socialist uh, uh, revolution. But in order to, uh, to de-link it from its radical uh, uh, continuation and to relink it to its less radical 1940s and 30s sort of instantiations as a form of state building, technocracy, bureaucratization, and so on. And so I don't find uh, uh, very much in the, there are, there are some of us in the field of uh, Chinese liter uh, literature and Chinese history who are uh, trying to uh, stave off a certain nostalgia, certainly. I don't uh, believe that nostalgia is uh, a, a good way to write about history uh, in any sense, uh, but to retrieve uh, the moments at which um, alternative presents and futures were thinkable. And in my own work, uh, I have uh, pretty brazenly chosen only those moments that are uh, that, that 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 reveal that openness, uh, because once once things close down, I'm not as interested any longer. And so my first book, Staging the World, that uh, Pauline referenced, is about the early 20th century, the late 19th, early 20th century, when uh, there was a real radical openness to uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, rethinkings of the past, present, and future that hadn't been closed down by the establishment of a new nation state or by the overthrow of the dynasty yet, of the Qing dynasty. And then uh, I've written about Mao, not, I hope, nostalgically or in any way um, uh, 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 adoringly or sycophantically, but as what made uh, Mao's imagination possible, what made it possible for somebody of a peasant kid born in Hunan province in the early, late 19th, early 20th century to imagine the, the transformation of China and the world in the way he did. Uh, so, you know, these for me are, uh, you know, some imaginations appeal to me more than others, <laughs> of course, but I, I, I write uh, often enough in ways that, and I think there are many of us now who are trying to uh, retrieve these moments of uh, radical openness rather than the moments in which that openness gets closed down. I just uh, don't know whether I said anything worthwhile there, but <laughs> yes, Melissa, um, please. First of all, thank you very much for that very really brilliant uh, lecture, um, Rebecca. In a sense, we are at a cross point uh, in history again because of the great disruptions and, and the great paradox that we are living in. I mean, the world is so interdependent, and yet it is drifting apart mm -hmm. in so many ways, yes. uh, be it in terms of um, growing inequalities, and I'm not just talking about the type that we are used to, mm -hmm. but the high concentration of wealth mm -hmm. that we have seen, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, the fact that uh, we are faced with new threats mm -hmm. uh, from the disruption of technology to climate change uh, to... Uh, the fact that uh, our politics are so divided uh, in terms of not being able to mobilize uh, people together. Uh, so we have very divided uh, societies. Mm -hmm. 
along religion, ethnicity, politics, uh, and so on. But this is also the time because of the chaotic nature of, of where we find ourselves and also the fear of the type of future that may emerge if we don't take uh, our future into control. Where do you see some of the great imaginings coming from? Because I have, uh, okay, I actually uh, was the Undersecretary General of the UN and also mm -hmm. a feminist uh, mm -hmm. uh, heading the, the UN Women's Fund. So women have been trying to recreate uh, a world that is fairer uh, and also uh, more, more equal, but that space is increasingly closing as well. Um, and uh, therefore, I would be very interested, uh, Rebecca, for you to reflect uh, where those, uh, and, and the pieces, because if you, even if you look at what's happening in the, uh, the US society, you have suddenly the re-emergence of uh, new ways of thinking about what you, you have been talking about in terms of socialism, but also mm -hmm. the other side. So, so, so it's so divided, it's mm -hmm. extremely divided. Mm -hmm. So where are some of the bridges? How do you mobilize? Where are the change coming from? And what type of a future do you see? Um, well, okay. Um, <laughs> I can answer none of those questions. Um, I can think along with many, many other people who think more directly about social movements and uh, who work, as you have, uh, much more directly in, in, t in uh, international organizations. Um, I am woefully inadequate in uh, terms of my own... Uh, 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 mobilizational activism, I've always found that my, my, my place where I can do my most, uh, uh, where I can have as much uh, impact as I, need, as I can possibly do is in the classroom. And so in part, I would say very drearily education. But um, that's hard. But I, I, I want to just pivot over to, I mean, I think there are, as I tried to mention, I mean, we can't sink into despair, obviously, because that would be, um, that would be conceding too much to the reality that uh, people with power want us to concede to. Um, and so I think that uh, there are many interstices uh, today. And one of the reasons I wrote this lecture the way I did with Dingling as my leitmotif and feminism and gendered social relations as the leitmotif of uh, Chinese uh, 20th century, I mean, one could write this, uh, you know, use a different representative figure, of course, and often, you know, you would hear Lu Xun or somebody else. But I really wanted to emphasize that I think one of the, um, one of the necessary and, in fact, um, uh, perhaps uh, real ways in which uh, change and transformative imagination has to happen is within the realm of, um, of, of, of a theory of social reproduction that is not um, limited to the dyadic reproductive roles of women and men in the family. And so that social reproduction, in a sense where one can think about the transformation of social relations in a far, that, 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 uh, that reproduce society without uh, uh, recuperating all of its patriarchal and other class and other norms. And so I don't have an answer for that, but I have a, uh, I have a theory for it. <laughs> and, 
There is no revolutionary movement without a revolutionary theory. So I'll, I'll, st I'll, 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 I'll quote Mao there, uh, who quotes Lenin. Um, and I will uh, start with a theory and then, and, then, uh, and then hope that that theory has some legs. Yeah. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. I wonder if you think the situation in Hong Kong is an example of insurgency, yeah. um, revisionist capitalism, mm -hmm. something else entirely. Mm -hmm. um, Hong Kong. Okay, I knew that was going to be a question. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I've been uh, uh, enmeshed in reading and thinking about Hong Kong, of course, since, uh, since the events have uh, uh, overtaken us. Um, the fascinating part about Hong Kong is that it is a very broad-based, unvanguardist sort of movement. In other words, it's an insurgency without a vanguard party, ideological, disciplinary uh, aspect to it, which I think is probably one of the ways in which the 21st century is going to be very different from the 20th century insurgencies, uh, and that we have to uh, think about what the goals are that are no longer going to be. I mean, I think the 20th century has shown us that the revolutionary seizure of state power only results in new forms of repression. <laughs> and so that it's unclear to me what the new goals have to be, but it, it seems to me that seizure of state power no longer is adequate to our reality. I, do, I mean, the, the, the Hong Kong um, if, uh, 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 coalition, if you want to put it that way, uh, which is a very loose term for the various uh, groupings and so on, uh, uh, encompass everything from a very nativist right-wing sort of uh, version of kill all mainlanders to Hong Kong nativism, which I find, you know, very, very difficult to accept, obviously, uh, to a far more anarchic, uh, you know, much more nihilistic, anarchic sort of, uh, that I don't know whether it's left-wing or right-wing violence, but, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a more violent wing. And then there's, there, there are those, I mean, there's a mainstream version of it, which is very much about, let's go to the, back to the status quo ante, where capitalism was, uh, uh, did, did its thing, we all had a well-ordered city, uh, and, you know, the trains ran on time and we didn't have to worry too much about politics. Politics stayed out of our lives uh, overtly and so on. I think nobody imagines that that's any longer possible. And so what, uh, what Hong Kong, I mean, I've... I've been very optimistic about its, uh, the insurgency incorporated in it because it, the creative aspect of that, of that movement, the visual creativity, the aesthetic creativity, the using of the topography and the architecture of Hong Kong to, uh, and the, the ways in which the digital creativity in which the, the, the movement has taken place has been very inspirational, I think. Um, I am not certain where it's going to lead. I mean, right now, of course, it's leading to absolute repression. And so we'll see what happens, whether it springs up in other ways and in other venues. Um, but yeah, Hong Kong is um, important. And I would be remiss by saying, by not mentioning uh, what's the, the uh, this is a total non sequitur, but uh, that, the, that we have to be looking also at what's happening in Xinjiang and the Uyghur incarcerations. Um, 
and the fact that there has been no uh, Islamic State uh, that has come to the uh, uh, aid or the uh, or to defend uh, the Uyghurs at all, and this is um, a cause of uh, extraordinary concern. That's may a I, total non sequitur, but I needed to get that in. Um, may I? Give, yes, please. Thank you very much for that mm -hmm. most in, uh, empowering, uh, sort of, um, and inspiring talk. May I give back to your one of your representative figures, Ding Ling? Mm -hmm. You haven't mentioned that moment, another moment of openness, mm -hmm. which is her participation in the Hundred Flowers movement, right? Mm -hmm. Which was also, to me, somewhat tragic. Mm -hmm. Or yes. very tragic yes. in that it closed down mm -hmm. again far too soon. Um, would you like to comment on that moment, or not? Um, yeah, no. I mean, obviously, I, 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 it, it's, it's, it's hard to cram into a forty-minute talk, you know, everything. And so I, I decided to go for themes rather than, uh, than, than total coverage. But yes, I mean, the, uh, the nineteen fifty-six, seven, eight moment of. Um, of ostensible cultural openness during the Mao period uh, that got closed down then with the anti rightist campaign and people like Ding Ling and so on were made to pay for and made to uh, apologize for their earlier sort of more bourgeois, you know, selves, you know. Um, and so she was, uh, she was, um, she was very discriminated. I mean, she was she was she was sent down to, and she was silenced, um, and um, and uh, she reemerged in the early uh, '80s. And she came. Um, I actually first uh, uh, got to know uh, Ding Ling personally when she was in. Uh, she came to spend a semester uh, in the United States in 1981 at the Iowa Writers Retreat. And she was baffled. Well, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, and so I would be baffled by Iowa too. But, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, but beyond being baffled by Iowa, she was baffled by, by American feminism. I mean, she just, it just didn't compute for her. She had absolutely no idea what, what American feminists were talking about. Um, and so, uh, and ultimately she was uh, old enough and in ill enough health that when she, you know, she didn't live long enough to really write uh, or, or, or reflect on that too much. But yeah, I mean, what happened to uh, that May 4th generation of writers many of whom did stay in the PRC when, uh, uh, after the Civil War, many of whom did throw in their lot with Mao's government and so on, and were genuinely interested in building socialism and genuinely uh, interested in building a culture that was adequate to a socialist uh, 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 present. Um, they ultimately didn't survive the politics of the, of the, of the period. They, uh, they were not able to navigate, the, and the politics became increasingly rapacious uh, in eating their, uh, its own. So, yeah, that's not a pretty story. Yeah. Um, in the time of uh, upheavals in China, like the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, how much of that was due to the personality of Mao uh, because a lot of interesting things were also happening along the same decades in other countries, 
like the Stalin time, and even like in Turkey, the Ataturk. So how much do you see it as an, I don't want to use the word influence again, but uh, from the leaders themselves, or how much of it was also supported by the uh, organization or the hierarchy of that? Yeah, I mean, there's, I, 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 the short answer to that is read my book on Mao, and I have a whole, <laughs> I, have a, I have a whole take on that, okay? That, I mean, I'm not a proponent of the great man theory of history, and so that I don't believe that Mao set out in the Great Leap Forward to kill 20 million Chinese by starving them to death. I mean, that's not my version of, I think that he, uh, was uh, very intent, of course, and his, uh, the, the Communist Party at the time went along with him. Uh, there was, a, I've written about this, and I have a whole, uh, uh, not to exonerate or to, 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 to explain it away, but there was a whole theory, I mean, part of the problem of socialism was there's not an economics that is uh, there's not an economics that is adequate to socialism. Economics as a discipline, as a practice, as a as a as a science, is a science of capitalism. And so, how do you do economics as a socialist proposition without falling back into capitalist uh, pr processes of counting beans, efficiencies, pr pr profits, and so on and so forth? And the Great Leap Forward was, in my view, a, an attempt to really, um, a tragically horrible, I mean, an attempt that was tragically uh, 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 and woefully inadequate, and of course quite deadly, uh, but it was an attempt to think about how, how do you put into practice an economics that's adequate to socialism. Now, it turns out, they couldn't, they couldn't think their way out of the box. I mean, there was no way, I mean, without theory, there is no movement, but if there's movement and the theory is inadequate to it, then there was no way to do it. So I, I think that there was a utopia, I mean, Mao was nothing if not a utopian thinker. Um, and so there were many, many experiments that, I mean, socialism hadn't in, uh, in, in, a, in a place like China had not been tried before. And so uh, there was inevitably socialism in China had to be an experimental, in an experimental mode. And that had, as all experiments, that had, you know, had, you know seriously tragic consequences that I don't want to minimize at all. But I don't also want to say this is the product of, you know, a, a particular Maoist demon that is, you know, somehow peculiar to the Chinese in any way. I mean, there have been people who've written in that mode, and I don't find it persuasive. Yeah. I'm told that time is up, so uh, time is up. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>